Would you open your Bibles, please, to Joshua chapter 2? Joshua chapter 2, it's on page 178, if you're using the, uh, the black Bibles that are under the seats in front of you. Joshua's the sixth book in the Bible. Um, while you're turning there, well, while you're, you, you might be there by the time I get to this, but um, I'm going to tell you just the, like, four-sentence story of the first five books of the Bible, if I can try to do that. But first, let me thank you for the opportunity to be here. We rejoice in the partnership, the fellowship in Christ um, that, that we have at High Point with your church and with others, uh, and with others throughout the city of Austin. And we pray for you regularly, even as I know that as you prayed for First Baptist in Oak Hill this morning, I know you pray for High Point as well, and we're grateful for that, and we're grateful for, um, for what we know we have in common, for the fact that your pastor could step into our pulpit as he has, and one of our pastors can step into your pulpit and know that God's word will be proclaimed faithfully, and that, and that God, in particular, that Jesus and the gospel will be made much of. So I thank you for this opportunity to serve you today. I'm going to be reading in, from, from Joshua chapter 2 in just a moment. Before we get there, though, let me tell you that, like I promised, the story of the first four books of the Bible, and then I'll tell you where we're going this morning. So the first five books of the Bible, okay, God creates mankind, but mankind very quickly rebels, falls into sin, and that sin infects all of humanity and all of creation. But God, as you know, does not leave humanity hopelessly uh, condemned under his wrath forever. You know that, right? God does not leave mankind in the situation we've got ourselves into. And so he plans to bring forth a seed of the woman through one particular nation, from, from the descendants, from the family of a man named Abraham, who God called out of idolatry to worship him and then led him into a land. But his family didn't stay in that land forever. There was a famine in the land, and as you may have heard, that, they, that family uh, went into Egypt because God had previously sent one family member from that family into that land to prepare the way before them and to save people's lives. So the people of Abraham, what eventually becomes the nation of Israel, they go down into Egypt, but God does not leave them in slavery in Egypt. They eventually find themselves in slavery in Egypt, but God brings them out, and he leads them through the wilderness where, because of their own sin, as we read about it in Hebrews chapter 3 earlier this morning, they find themselves wandering in the desert for 40 years. They'd been in slavery in Egypt, now they're enduring the, the price of their own sin in the wilderness. But God doesn't leave them there either. And the story of Joshua tells, them, tells us how God brought his people into the land he'd promised to give, to give them, where he would dwell among them, and where he would one day raise up the seed of the woman who would provide salvation to mankind. Now that was probably more than four sentences, I guess, unless you take my butts and ands and, you know, make a bunch of big, long sentences. But that's a brief story of the first four books of the Bible, and this morning we come to the book of Joshua. But here's what I want you to be thinking about as we read and, and, and think about Joshua chapter 2 this morning. And I was thinking about it in this way, that when, when someone joins High Point, when someone goes through the, the process of becoming a member at High Point Baptist Church, one of the last things that happens is that an elder and another person from the pastoral staff, we sit down with that person or those people, and we meet with them to hear them explain the gospel. We want to know that people joining understand what it really means to be a Christian. And then we also hear kind of a, a short summary of their life story beginning maybe with what kind of family they grew up in. Sometimes people grew up in a, in a Christian home with the church all their lives. Other times people grew up never hearing the gospel until much later in life. And it's always a joy to hear as we focus in on that, that part of their lives where they heard the gospel and how God moved in their hearts that they would respond to it. A few weeks ago, I got to interview a young married couple 
Both saved in their 20s. Both grew up in, in, in Houston, actually in, in the same neighborhood in Houston. And both said that all their friends in high school would have said, both of them said that all their friends in high school would have said that they were the last two people that their friends ever would have expected to come to Christ. And here they are, married to each other, and now beginning to faithfully serve in a congregation as they establish their life together. They're still relatively newly married. Have you heard that kind of story before? Of someone who was the last person you ever would have expected to come to Christ, who then does. I suspect, I suspect all of us, at least almost all of us, know somebody like that. And, and, and in fact, I suspect that some of us here this morning might be that person. We might be the person that nobody growing up with us, nobody in our school, nobody in our family perhaps, nobody would have ever thought we would end up following Jesus. So this morning, we want to look at one particular story in the Bible, a story about someone just like that, maybe the last person on the block that anyone would have ever thought would follow the God of Israel. So we want to see a story about someone just like that and about what God did in her life. So let's dig into the first couple verses of Joshua chapter 2 as we think about Israel on the verge of occupying the land that God had promised them. Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they, these two spies, they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. So, I'm just going to summarize the story as we work through it. Joshua sends these two spies, sort of like Moses had sent had sent spies into the land years before. That didn't end so well. So let's listen carefully and see how this story ends. As Israel is on the verge of crossing the Jordan River into the, into the Promised Land. And when the spies come to Jericho, word leaks out. In fact, the spies wind up having to hide in a prostitute's house. Now, what should we think about this house? It's, it's a little bit different from what you might think about if we use that phrase today. It's, it's not exactly a reputable hotel, you know, somewhere you might stay along the interstate that's a reputable place to stay. But it's not a private home either. Okay? It's not one person's home that's devoted to this, to this business. I think if we want to catch something that, that we might be familiar with, think of a, of a saloon in an old western kind of movie. You know what that likes? This looks like the building in the, in the middle of the city with the swinging doors and the stairs up to the top where the women conducting this sort of business hang out. Maybe a little seedier than that. And, and not in the middle of town like those saloons tend to be, but on the edge of town. We know as the story progresses that Rahab's house is along the walls of Jericho. That's probably similar to, to what we should imagine as we think of as, as Rahab's house here. And when the king hears that spies have come to Rahab's house, he sends a, he sends a squad to capture him. There are people coming and going in her house, needless to say. Lots of illicit activity. It's a good place to avoid being noticed. Everybody in the house is trying to kind of keep their identity undercover. But places where conversations, no doubt, could easily be overheard. So it shouldn't be surprising that the king finds out what was happening in this house. And he sends a squad to capture them. Let's, let's read about that in verses 3 through 7. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, 
True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. (coughs) So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. The gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So what happens here clearly is that Rahab lies. She says the men have gone when really they're up on top of her roof hidden underneath the flax. And she convinces the squad that the king had sent that, that the men left the city earlier. So the squad then, the squad that the king had sent, left the city hot on this, this false trail. And by the way, I'm not going to address this morning whether it was right for Rahab to deceive the king's soldiers in this way or not. I've, I've heard sermons on this text. Maybe some of you have. I might have preached one. I don't know. It's been so long. I've heard sermons on this text that got absorbed with whether it was right for Rahab to to lie or not. I think that's a justifiable question. It's a reasonable question. But it isn't really the point of this text, so I'm just not going to spend much time there rather than keep you here another 15 minutes. I think you'd prefer that I get to the point of the text as quickly as I can. So that's what I'm going to try to do. And I'm going to skip over verses 8 to 11. We'll come back to those in just a moment. So let's read verses 12 through 14. Now then, this is Rahab talking to these spies. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, And when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. So here we see that Rahab makes a a bargain with these two spies. That she would protect them, not turn them in, if they would protect her family. She was confident, we'll see that in the verses I skipped over, she was confident that that the Israelites would conquer the city of Jericho. So So she says, when you come back here, I'll keep you safe, but when you come back here, you spare my family, everyone who's with me here in the house. Back to verses 15 to 22. Then she, Rahab, let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go on your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, when they're about to conquer the city, You shall tie this scarlet cord in the window which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the, all the, and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. So here we see that Rahab has helped the, sky, the spies escape the city. They head for the hills. They lay low for a few days until the search parties eventually give up. Then the, and the search parties returned to Jericho. Then the men returned to the camp of Israel. 
The coast is clear. And in, in verses 23 and 24, which we'll read later, they report to Joshua. Now, is this really such a, is this such a remarkable story? Does anything dramatic happen in this story? I don't think so. I mean, doesn't it seem sort of like a little rabbit trail? I mean, let's get on to the, to the battles where Israel crosses over the Jordan River and attacks the city of Jericho. And the walls fall down, and then they attack all the other cities. And you might know other stories from Jericho. The sun stands still, and God sends hailstones down to plaster all of Israel's enemies. Let's get on to the good stuff, right? Why this little story about a prostitute? I mean, imagine if we just, heaven forbid, if we just rip this page right out of the Bible what would we lose? Keep reading in the book of Joshua. God still keeps all his promises. Why do we need to know about this woman? What's the point? I believe that this story is here to show us actually a very big part of God's plan for all of humanity. It's an early hint. It's a clue at what God is doing. So as we read in the, in the whole book of Joshua, that at the very same time that God is keeping his promise to Israel to give them the land, and he's wiping the face of that land clean from the Canaanites, at the very same time God is doing that, he's also starting to bless not just the people of Israel, but all the nations. He's even saving one woman, a particularly wicked woman, from the Canaanites, a particularly wicked woman from the very people that God is judging for their wickedness. God, while his justice is on display, simultaneously, so is God's mercy. It's a hint that God is calling and will succeed in calling people from all the nations of the earth to worship him. And it also tells us something about the kind of people God saves. You want to take one sentence and hang on to it, which is what this sermon's about this morning. This sermon, this text is about the fact that God saves the most unlikely people. And God also uses the most unlikely people. The very last people we would expect for him to save. The very last people we would expect for him to use. So let's see first how God saves the most unlikely people. You might already be picking up on some of it. What makes her unlikely? Well, for one thing, she's a Gentile. Not just any old Gentile. She's a Canaanite Gentile. She's part of one of the groups of people in this land that God is destroying. God is wiping out because of their idol, idolatry and because of their wicked practices. But do you see how amazing her words are? You haven't seen it yet. I'm going to show it to you now. Look at how amazing it is that a Gentile pagan idol worshiper would say what Rahab says. So look with me at those verses I skipped over. Look with me at verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof where they were hiding. And she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when he came out of Egypt. This is 40 years ago. Still talking about it. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. 
the Lord your God. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Let that sink in for just a moment. Not just the words, but who is speaking those words? God is in the process of using the Israelites to exterminate Rahab's people. Why? Because they worshipped just about every imaginable God other than the one true God. In their system of gods, what they believed, there were the, the Canaanite gods had, they believed that the Canaanite gods had limited areas of influence. So a god might be the god of the mountains, one god of the mountains, another god of the valleys, another god of the earth, another god of the sky, and then another god of the water, another god of rain, and, and different limited spheres. But notice how what Rahab says is so different from what the Canaanites believed about their gods. She knows that Yahweh is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. In other words, he is the God of everything. Now, Peter gets some credit in the Gospels, right, when Jesus says, who do men say that I am? What does Peter say? He says, I, you are the Christ, the Messiah. You are God's anointed king. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. But you know what I think? I think that what Rahab says here is even more amazing than what, than what Peter said. I mean, you know, Peter, he'd been walking around with Jesus for, for, for years at that point when he made that confession of faith. Peter's statement has more theological precision. But this is a pagan Canaanite prostitute, idol-worshiping prostitute. Verse 11, she confesses exactly what Israel was supposed to believe. I'm not going to take you back to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Write down Deuteronomy 4.39 if you want to look at it later. She says exactly what the Israelites were supposed to believe about the one true God. Let me read it to you. Moses, talking to the Israelites, says, Because he, because Yahweh, loved your fathers, and he chose their offspring after them, and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence, by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance, as it is this day, Know therefore today and lay it to your heart. Again, Moses talking to the Israelites, lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. And now Rahab, now Rahab confesses those very same words. How did she know this? How did she even hear? She's using the name for God, the name Yahweh, what you might see in, in, in your Bibles as the the word Lord in all capital letters, or what you may have, or may have heard of described as Jehovah. This is the particular name that God revealed himself by to the people of Israel that says, I will keep my promises to you. Now, obviously, Rahab is not the only one who, who knew the facts about this God. She says in verse 11 that, that there was no spirit in any man among her people when they heard about what God had done. But it does seem as though Rahab is the only one, maybe with her family, but Rahab is the only one whose knowledge about God and what he done. She's the only one whose knowledge produced faith that saved her from doom. We read about this in Hebrews chapter 11, okay? One of the books in the New Testament on the after side of the cross. The author of Hebrews says, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. The Canaanites are religious people. They had plenty of gods. But she has faith in the one true God. 
Let me just say a word of caution to you today. Religion will not save you. Being here and sitting quietly, awakely, if that's a word, sitting patiently through long sermons will not make you right with God. Devotion, faith, dependence in the one true God alone, that alone will save us. As we, as we continue this morning, we'll be reminded of more that the one true God has done to make us his people. But remember this morning, religion, religion will lead you to doom. Only Christ will lead you to redemption and life. So this passage is one of the early clues in the Bible. It gets expanded way more later on. But this is one of the early clues in the Bible that though God, though God had created a special relationship with the nation of Israel, with the physical descendants of Abraham, God always intended to include people of all nations. God always intended to include people outside of Abraham's family, among his people, within his family. And we see God's mercy among the Gentiles expand and spread over all the earth in the New Testament. We sang the words in that last song, Speak, O Lord. In the last verse, I wrote it down here, it says, Help us grasp the heights of your plans for us till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. And that's what God is doing. Rahab is one of the, she's one of the early indications that God is accomplishing that purpose. To fill the earth, not just with one nation, but with people from all nations who would worship him alone. The story expands in the book of Acts from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And then in the book of Revelation, what do we see gathered around the throne of Jesus? Who do we see gathered around the throne of Jesus singing praises to his name? At the end of the story, people from, pe people from every tribe and language and nation of the earth. God succeeds in this, in this mission it is only in its early phases here with Rahab. Now, if God saves the most unlikely people, how should that affect the way we think about the mission that has been entrusted to us? So when I think of our mission, I think about making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them to do everything that Jesus had commanded. So when we think about our mission, how should our mission, what, how, how should we have hope and confidence in our mission when we think about the fact that Jesus saves the most unlikely people. Shouldn't that give us courage? Shouldn't it give us not just courage, but confidence? Within just a couple miles of where my family lives, actually within just a couple miles of, of our church on the north end of Austin, there's a Buddhist temple, a Vietnamese Roman Catholic church, a Muslim community center. I don't know this part of town as well as you all do. I assume that there are people of all faiths and people of no faith within just a couple miles of this church or wherever it is in the Austin metropolitan area that you live. I assume that there are people just like Rahab, pagans, prostitutes, sexually immoral in other ways within just a couple miles of here or your home. How do, how do you feel about that? 
does it does it disgust you? Does it make you want to isolate yourselves? Does it perhaps intimidate us? Make us think that we are, you know, losing our grip on American culture and society? We're losing our grip on the good old days, maybe we could say? I wonder whether it wouldn't be a better response. I wonder whether we might not be more effective in our mission as Christians. As we think about our proximity to these non-religious or other religious groups as an opportunity. You see, God is bringing the nations and all the false religions of all the world to this very city. And he is bringing to his people an opportunity to declare the gospel to people from every tribe and language and nation of the earth more and more and more in this city. My friends in a small city in Illinois and in a small town in Minnesota, of all places, are both seeing fruit, evangelizing and making disciples of Burmese people, the Karen people group from Burma. In fact, the guy in Illinois, he's not even a pastor. He's a graphic designer, and he is spreading the gospel among Burmese people who have come to Rockford, Illinois. And he is seeing people come to faith in Christ and being trained in the gospel and in the word of God and being equipped to make disciples among their own people group. Who knows what God will do through that, through that graphic designer as he spreads the gospel among the Karen people. So let us, instead of being angry or fearful, let us rejoice. Let us rejoice at the opportunities that are available to us just outside these doors. Some of you I know work in the tech industry. There's a, a man in our church who works at, several men, but one in particular I was just talking to, works at Samsung, and it was just telling me how there seems to be such a high density of people in the tech industry who are hostile to religion or have come to the United States from other countries and so have a background in other faiths other than Christianity. I don't know why that is, but sometimes we think of Texas as a very kind of Christian place, but more and more, we are having opportunities to rub shoulders with in our neighborhoods, in our workplace, as we walk down the street of central Austin or around this part of town, with people who have who've not just heard the gospel and rejected it, but have never once yet heard it. Let us rejoice at that opportunity, that you may not have to go to, to India or Mongolia or Turkmenistan to reach people from those countries. But there's something else about Rahab. She's not, just a, she's not just a Gentile. She's also, and we can't avoid it here, she's a prostitute. Is that what you'd expect? Imagine that you'd read the whole Bible. Imagine you'd read the whole Bible, everything except the book of Joshua. And imagine you hear a preacher mention that God used one person in Jericho to deliver his people deliver those spies, and then God preserved that person's, that person's life and that person's whole family. What kind of person would you have guessed that would be, if I asked you to guess? Would you have guessed a prostitute? It's kind of like, you know, we, you, you, you build up a team here in this congregation, a team of people to move to Los Angeles. And you go to Los Angeles to, to plant a church in a part of town that, that needs churches. And your first convert is someone who spent the last 20 years in the adult film industry. And that's just, I'm just trying to set it in context of how we might think of this situation compared to ours today. Imagine that. 
what God has done. A couple implications I'm going to draw from this aspect of who Rahab was. I want to make some applications to you as individuals. So you might think you're not much. You might think you're not educated. You might think you've got stuff in your past that may not be so similar from Rahab. You might think those things would make it impossible for God to use you. Is that you? It might be that you are sitting here this morning thinking, I've got stuff in my past that makes it impossible for God to save me. It's just too horrendous. Something that you did. Something that was done to you. Is that you who would say that you're beyond God's reach? I mean, just, just think about that for a second. Listen to yourself for a second. If you are thinking of that as you, impossible for God to use you. Impossible for God. Do you see why that doesn't make a lot of sense? Impossible for God. There's no one in this room who's beyond the reach of God's mercy. And there's no one in this room today whom God could not use to make much of his name, to spread the gospel and to see fruit in the response. Let me speak to you as a church as well. I would encourage you, Park Hills Baptist Church, brothers and sisters here, to have confidence as you seek to, meet, to, as you seek to reach the most unreachable parts of Austin. I would encourage you to think boldly even about planting churches in the most unreachable parts of Austin. You might say that's beyond where we are right now. And I'm not saying that, you know, you need to have a church planted in the next six months. But could, could there be wisdom? Could there be fruitfulness and godly ambition in beginning to, to think about it and pray about it that God would give you that chance to plant a church in, an, in a needy part of this rapidly growing city? Now, lots of people think that the most, most unreachable parts of Austin are the places where there, there's the most poverty and crime, maybe the places where people like Rahab are most likely to live. And I actually wonder whether the hardest areas in Austin to reach might not be the gated communities in West Lake, the gated estates in places like Terrytown and, you know, Rollingwood, not so far from here. And here you are. Here you are at Mopac and Bee Caves Road, and God has planted this congregation here. I presume with relatively few other congregations, gospel-preaching congregations, in close proximity to this church. And God has planted you here in what I believe might be one of the most, maybe the most unreachable part of Austin by human standards. And yet there is no one in this community who is beyond God's reach. Will you pray boldly? Will you act boldly? to get the gospel to these people and see what God will do. I can't, listen, this is where my wisdom runs out. I can't tell you how to do it. I got no idea. But you know somebody who does know how. You know that all you need to do is scatter the seed and God will find those hearts where the soil is fertile for the, for the seed to, to, to spring up and send down roots and bring forth fruit. So I think we need to be careful 
talking about which people are more or less likely to repent of sin and believe the gospel. I think we need to guard against pride. I think there's a subtle danger in which we might tend to think that, well, we were reachable. There was, as if there was something innate to us, something in us that made it easier for God to save us. As if our sin were less offensive to him. As if our sin were less worthy of his condemnation. Or as if our rebellion made us less blind than the people we meet on the streets or in our neighborhood. The truth is that we tend to think about people on the outside of our congregation as Rahab's. The truth is that you and I, we are no better than Rahab. And God showed his mercy to us. God saves the most unlikely people. But God also uses the most unlikely people. Look with me at verses 23 and 24. Then the two men returned to the Israelite camp. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Do you see how God used Rahab in the life of these spies? I mean, obviously God used Rahab to, to deliver them to protect them. But ultimately, God used Rahab to encourage these spies and then ultimately to encourage all of Israel to believe God's promises, to encourage them to trust God. You heard what the spies said. The spies said, the Lord has given all the land into our hands. This is the contrast between the 12 spies that Moses had sent out, 10 of whom came back and said, we're hopeless. These two spies come back and say, we can take this land. God has given it to us already. They are already petrified of us. They will melt before us. So do you see what's happened here? I mean, is this all random chance? No, I believe God has sovereignly planned to use these circumstances not only to save some Gentiles, but also to encourage his people to move forward, to pursue the mission that he's given them, to keep them from making the same mistakes their parents had made back in the wilderness. God has orchestrated this story to accomplish his purposes. And do you think this is the only time God ever orchestrated a story to accomplish his purposes? I mean, no, this is throughout the pages of the Bible, and this is what God has promised to do among us as well, to orchestrate the the story, to orchestrate your story and mine to accomplish his purposes. God helps us believe God helps us believe that he will keep his promises. But that's not all. You see, this isn't the last that we hear of Rahab in in the Bible. We hear about her again when the Israelites conquer the, the city of Jericho in a couple chapters. And exactly what the spies had promised her happens. Her whole family is 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 delivered from the conquering armies. But we see her again in the New Testament. Do you know where Rahab's name comes up in the New Testament? It comes up in Matthew chapter 1. Verse 5, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. What that's telling us is that Rahab becomes incorporated in the people of Israel, and she becomes the mother of Boaz, and then the grandmother of Obed, and then the great, and I think there's some, some skips in the genealogy, so it's not as if she was directly the great-grandmother of, of Jesse. 
But who's the son of Jesse? David, right? And who is David, the great, 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 many great grandfather of through Mary? Jesus. So do you see how this pagan, idol-worshiping prostitute becomes incorporated into the lineage of Jesus Christ? You see, what's amazing here is that this, this person who needed the gospel of, of mercy that was made available to her through, through God's promises, this person who needed the gospel becomes a, a vehicle through which the person who demonstrates and accomplishes the gospel enters the human race. Rahab becomes an ancestor of Jesus Christ, who is God himself, the Son of God, who enters the human race to redeem mankind from the, from the wickedness that we have all committed. So that Jesus lives the life that none of us have lived, but every single one of us ought to have lived. And then, Jesus, as the God-man, the Son of God in human flesh, having lived that perfect life, receives, poured out upon himself, the wrath of God, in the place of all who will trust in him, who will repent of sins and cast our full hope and dependence upon his work, upon his sacrifice, upon his suffering for us on the cross. By faith, Rahab became a recipient of those promises. And she became a, an ancestor of the one who delivered those promises to us. What an amazing, but at the same time, totally unsurprising story of the people that God uses. Maybe you think you're such a mess that God could never use you. Let me just get in your face and say, don't be so proud. Don't be so proud as to think that God could never use you. You're not that tough. You're not that bad. You never could be. You could never be such a mess. You could never be such a failure that God would not use you in the lives of his people, even as he used Rahab in the lives of his people. No, you will not be an ancestor to the Messiah. Okay, we can cut that out of the equation, right? But God could certainly encourage you to use your brothers and sisters in this congregation. He could use those among you who are suffering, those among you who are fighting sin, and it's hard because you want things, you want the wrong things, and you're having to fight to keep from getting caught up in it but you are fighting. Others of you, others among us here today, whenever it may be, we will die painful deaths unless Jesus returns first. Some of us will die having gone through years of agony. Some of us will die in a moment of excruciating pain. Some of us will face physical physical uh, limitations, debilitating conditions over the course of many years. And as we suffer well and die well, you will encourage your brothers and sisters in this congregation to hang on to Jesus and to keep believing to the very end because he is worth it. I remember a man named David. I haven't seen him in a few years now, but I grew up in a church with him for, well, several years in a church with him. He was a Vietnam vet. He struggled in many ways with the repercussions of his time in Vietnam. He'd had a bit of a tough life since then. He had, he had made choice of his, uh, choices of his own in, in hopping around from church to church. And this guy, 
said something to me one day after a church service. I have no idea why he said it. This guy who had struggled, who, who struggled in many ways throughout the rest of his life, and I, I suppose still does, he said, Ben, I think you ought to be a pastor one day. That was the last thing I wanted to do when I was a 15-year-old kid. He said, Ben, I think you ought to be a pastor. I think you got the temperament for it. Now, the funny thing about all that was that I wasn't even a Christian then. I was a professing Christian, but I was living a, a fraud life. And David saw something in me or thought he saw something in me that has echoed in my mind year after year after year after year. I've never forgotten it. And somehow, I think I'm a pastor today in part because of how God used this somewhat broken man by his grace in my life. Have you heard of a guy named the Apostle Paul? The greatest gospel-preaching, church-planning missionary the world has ever known. Do you remember what he did before he was the greatest gospel-preaching, church-planning missionary the world has ever known? Let me put it to you this way. He was a Christian-killing Middle Eastern terrorist. That's what Paul was before he came to faith in Christ. Friday night, a family came over to our house and brought dinner to us. They, you know, they came to our house and brought us dinner. We ate it there in our house. Just over a year ago, the husband and wife were Orthodox Jews. Orthodox, I mean serious, practicing Jews. God actually brought some people from a cult, a cult across their paths. Through this contact with a cult, they started reading their Bibles. They already read the Old Testament. They started reading the New Testament. They started reading in the book of Matthew, sensibly enough. And by the time they got to Matthew chapter 13, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And God had saved them. And they were Christians. And now, they're hoping to serve as missionary church planters in another country in a few years. I don't know what God is going to do with Joe and Shoshana. But it reminds me of another phrase that we sang in the song, Speak, O Lord. Words of power that can never fail, let their truth prevail over unbelief. Let this truth prevail over unbelief. Over the unbelief that has kept you in darkness, refusing to repent and believe the gospel. And over unbelief that God would use you in the lives of his, of his people or of his people to be. So let me close by asking you just, just a couple questions. Who's the person in your life, your family, your workplace, your neighborhood, who's the person in your life that you think is least likely to follow Jesus? Who is that person? Is there a name in your head right now? Who's the person in your life that you think is least likely to be fruitful in doing God's work? in spreading the gospel, in explaining who Jesus is and why people need to respond to faith with faith in him. Maybe that person is you. Is the God you worship big enough to save that person? I mean, really. Is the God that you worship big enough to save the person you think is most unlikely? Is the God you worship big enough to produce fruit in the person that you think is most useless, even if it's you? As you reflect on those questions, I wonder whether you and I need to repent of our unbelief. Unbelief in a God who is 
the God of all heavens and earth. I want to ask us to consider whether we need to confess our unbelief to God in the moments of quiet that I will give you in just a moment. And if you have not believed the gospel, if you have not yet put your dependence upon Jesus' life and death in your place, in these quiet moments, would you call out to him today? Would you call out to him? Why would you leave here today knowing that God stands ready and able to save you? Why would you leave while you still remain under his condemnation when instead you could receive his mercy? Brothers and sisters, before I close in prayer, let's pause for a few moments and reflect on how we need to repent and believe. Father in heaven, you are God of all the heavens and, and the earth. You are God of all that is. We praise you that you are worthy of our devotion, that you are worthy of our confidence, that you are fully worthy of our trust, and you have demonstrated your worthiness. And yet we confess that we think too little of you. We think too little of the power of the human heart to persist in rebellion even when the gospel, the light of the gospel is on display. We think too lightly of your ability to open blinded eyes and open deaf ears, to change hearts of stone into hearts of soft clay. We confess this, that our, we confess our sin of unbelief we pray that you would help us to believe. We pray that you would cause us to be faithful and fruitful in spreading the gospel. And may we find many opportunities for joy as we see what you will do. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.